Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, we are talking about Russia in the age of COVID-19. We've been looking over the last few episodes at some of the consequences of the coronavirus for the EU's internal unity, for geopolitics on the world stage. And one of the interesting questions about COVID-19 is how it's affecting all of the great powers, but also what opportunities and challenges it offers to them all as the world goes through this powerful set of political and healthcare related challenges. To help us make sense of how Russia is dealing with this and how it's changing some of the underlying political developments in Russia, such as Putin's decision to to, to carry on in power for forever, <laughs> I have an all-star cast, both from Berlin, I think, or unless you're in, in Estonia at the moment, Kadri. Where are you? I'm, I am in Estonia. Ah, so from Estonia, you can hear the dulcet tones of Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And from Berlin, we have Gustav Gresser, who is another senior policy fellow at ECFR. So, Kadri, why don't you start by telling us how COVID-19 is uh, affecting Russia, how Putin's dealing with the crisis and uh, what the world looks like from Moscow? I think the world looks from Moscow different from what it used to. And that can, of course, be said about every capital. Moscow is also in lockdown. People are not encouraged to move on the streets. And I think overall, the picture is not entirely dissimilar to what we see in in London or Berlin or Tallinn. Russia is still in the early stages of the epidemics, I would say. Their growth curve has been not so good. Uh, There has been between 10 and 20 percent growth in cases each day. But absolute numbers are still fairly low, especially if you think in per capita terms. Russia has right now, I think, a little bit over 8,000 diagnosed infected and around 80 deaths. So for a country of 1.4 million, that is not a big figure. And I think Russia also started taking measures fairly early on. We were in Moscow with ECFR delegation in early March And already back then, Russia introduced a rule that everyone returning from Western Europe needs to quarantine for 14 days. And that made many Russians cancel their trips to Europe while Europe was still open and and functioning. So I think some measures they took early on and they also adopted lockdowns earlier than many European countries. However, the funny thing about it, of course, is that President Putin is almost absent. He has had two speeches, but with little to say. He has basically delegated handling of the crisis to local leaders, governors, mayors, and so forth. Also prime minister and himself, he steers clear of making tough decisions. So to me, watching it is also very interesting psychologically, because it is quite evident that risk crisis is not Putin's. You know, Putin is someone who sees as his role models, Peter the Great or Yuri Andropov or some of these tough guys who expanded Russia, withstood foreign interference, uh, caught spies, handled their own spies, so forth. But he's not Florence Nightingale, so he's a little bit 
out of a place in return of events. And, and that is very visible. So we'll talk a bit later about some of the, the kind of bigger political developments, the constitutional changes within Russia. But how much is Putin or Russian influence visible outside of the country? Uh, Gustav, you've written a lot about Russia's political interference, the, the way that it's got involved in the internal affairs of lots of other countries. You know, there have been a lot of talk in earlier podcasts about China's strategic communications efforts and, and disinformation. How much is, is Russia trying to gain political benefit from Corona outside of its borders? In Italy, we saw quite uh, sophisticated assistance and, and the exploitation of which, I mean, there's a debate about the efficiency of the assistance. And I, I also have some doubts on the effectiveness of, of military decontamination tools in such a public healthcare crisis, because military healthcare and military medication and military decontamination functions to the rules uh, of war and uh, the efficiency in maintaining armed forces at war, which is different from running a public health care crisis to the hygiene standards of you know, public life. Nevertheless, it's visible. On the disinformation front, I think now some steps that Putin undertook are, are catching up with Russia. I mean, if you look closer into the sort of conspiracy machinery that has been kicked into gears by various actors, not only the Russians. I would say Russia at, at previous points has created bureaucratic offices for lies and nonsense. And now, although Russia has no consorted strategy what to do with them or how to exploit the narrative of coronavirus, it still has uh, offices in place and bureaucrats uh, sitting behind desks that from nine to five produce lies and nonsense at the time, very uncoordinated. And the public talk about that actually basically annihilates some of the positive news Russia has been producing or has tried to, to gain via sending medical uh, assistants and doctors and military uh, decontamination units. So it's sort of coming back on Moscow to haunt them. So, Niku, you trying to get into the call. I didn't announce you at the very beginning. Niku Popescu, the head of our wider Europe program. How do you see both the impact of the virus within Russia, but also how is it affecting Russia's relationships with other countries, particularly in the neighborhood? It is pretty early, of course, to assess what is the impact on Russia. Actually, for now, Russia is not very affected in per capita terms by coronavirus. So the wave that is slowly approaching Russia, it's coming from Europe. Small parenthesis here, Russia got coronavirus from Europe, not from China, which is both indicative of the intensity of links Russia has with Europe rather than with China, for that matter. But this wave has not hit Russia yet. So the per capita levels of contamination are quite low. So already more or less two weeks that Russia starts finally getting serious coronavirus. And, you know, probably one indicator when Russia has a really, really serious problem and Putin tends to disappear from being the main handler of that problem. So this happened with uh, some of the terrorist attacks, the incident with the Kursk submarine almost 20 years ago, when something really, really serious happens and coronavirus is one of these instances, Putin tends to delegate the authority and the potential risks of handling such crises to someone else. So in this crisis, he kind of delegated the main decision-making power to governors. Of course, the Kremlin is behind and most of the decisions are coordinated with the Kremlin, but Putin personally is trying to take some distance from it. Also, with Russia taking more seriously 
the impact of the crisis in Russia itself. My sense is that the Russian very aggressive and pretty nihilistic propaganda around coronavirus and its effect in Europe somewhat went down throughout early March and most of February. The Russian propaganda was partly diminishing the impact of the crisis, but even coming with ways to disrupt what the European authorities were telling their citizens, stay at home, wash your hands. So some of this propaganda machine was actually even targeting this self-care advice, if you want. But now that kind of has stopped because Russia realized that it's something very serious. It's hitting Russia as well. And we tried to focus, of course, to play a more positive game around Italy, but even that didn't work very well. Kadri, a lot of this stuff's been going on whilst at the, exactly the same time as the constitutional position of, uh, of Russia has been changed. We've had several discussions on this podcast about those changes. Um, how do these two things intersect with one another? Yes, well, Putin introduced constitutional changes in January, which called upon changing the system, not allowing uh, future presidents to return to a post after having served their two terms. And in general, it was seen as start of his transition and diversification of power in Russia. Thinking behind it was that as you cannot find new Putin, then his functions need to be split among different institutions. Uh, then, however, the whole process got messier and messier. Constitutional amendments became ever more contradictory. Some were weakening presidential power, others were strengthening it from the other hand. Uh, some proposals were populist, directed to pleasing the population, mostly those that had to do with economic measures. Then different lobbies got involved, not least the church lobby, and hence the uh, definition of marriage as linkage between man and woman, and so, so, so forth. So the process got visibly messy. And yet again, when we were in Moscow in early March, it was interesting to see that even uh, the lawmakers in the Duma who were about to vote on the changes, they were openly sarcastic about what was happening. And of course, then the unexpected happened on uh, 9th of March, or was it 10th, when Valentina Tereshkova on the cosmonaut proposed that Putin's terms should be nullified. So he goes back to square one and can start all over again, can have his two terms starting 2024, discounting the previous four terms he has had. And that is irony, of course. When I saw what's happening, it, it reminded me of that old Russian joke about a man who tries to build a samovar but always ends up constructing a Kalashnikov machine gun. And that's exactly what seems to have happened. Putin was trying to leave power, but ended up preparing ground for staying even longer. The big question here is, was it the plan from the start or did something happen in the course of events? And I think it, it will, of course, be probably many years before we properly know. But so my instinct is to assume that something went wrong because Putin's special operations these tend to be tidier. We tend to be more linear, sometimes even primitive. And, and this process was visibly messy. So I think there was some sort of change of plan along the journey. And why? It could be because Putin saw that economic situation is not going to be conducive to handover of power. There was thinking in Moscow that you need 
people to be well off, you need economic growth, and that will secure transfer of power so that no upheavals happen. And that's why they launched national projects. That's why they changed prime minister. The hope was that the new prime minister manages to bring more money into the economy so that people are better off and don't mind change of power in the Kremlin, that everything will be well. But then things started happening. And among the things were oil price collapse, as well as coronavirus. And I don't exclude that at one point the Kremlin thought that, listen, that doesn't look good. We cannot risk handover of power in the conditions of such uncertainty. I do not know, but observing their habits, that could be logical. And while all this is going on, there's also been a kind of strange uptick in military tensions between Russia and the West. A lot of uh, action in the North Sea at the moment. Gustav, do you, do you want to explain that? Do you think that can be related with, with the whole corona crisis and the way that the political attention is being absorbed by that in other places? No, I wouldn't connect it to corona crisis. So in military terms, we are pretty much back to the Cold War on a lighter footage. And the naval aspect of both the Second World War, the Cold War, from the Allied side was to block enemy submarines from entering the Atlantic and touching the European Amer- North American vital lifelines. So it's the old Greenland, UK, Iceland gap and the channel. And there was an NATO maneuver scheduled for right now with the Royal Navy in the lead and the German Navy, the Danish Navy and the Dutch Navy joining to practice patrolling northern entrances into the Atlantic. And the Russians sort of before this exercise commenced deployed a fleet on their own into the North Sea. Uh, to patrol the, the ways that uh, uh, the naval vessels of the Allied nations would go out uh, and shadow them. And now that uh, due to coronavirus, uh, this exercise has been slightly postponed and downscaled, they were basically idling in the North Sea and driving around. So it's it's more business as usual than, than uh, coronavirus stuff. I mean, people have been talking about a lot of the geopolitical consequences of the of the crisis. Some of them are about kind of, you know, shifts in the balance of power away from America towards China. Other people have been talking about the possibility of distraction leading to to people playing up and testing the, the resolve of, of Western countries. Is that something that we should be worried about, Niku? Of course, you have Russia undertaking uh, something of a push to try and make the case for the abolition of sanctions. Uh, I've heard some American voices arguing that perhaps now is a good moment to actually get to a deal with Russia over Ukraine, where Donbass is pacified and slowly you get to a roadmap of reintegrating Donbass into Ukraine. And that could lead to the removal of sanctions. But it's too early now to speculate about that. What is not too early to speculate is about the Russian economy and the oil prices. And I think partly because Russia was not taking coronavirus seriously a month ago, Russia let it deal with OPEC, the so-called OPEC plus arrangement sleep. It did not prolong its agreement with Saudi Arabia, which only aggravated the fall in, in oil prices. And I think, you know, Russia underestimating the gravity of coronavirus probably had something to do with this lack of seriousness about where the global economy and the oil prices were going. And that is hitting Russia economically very hard at a time when everyone is hit hard anyway. 
And that is likely to have very serious implications, both domestically but also internationally. So now Russia has been trying to get back into an agreement with Saudi Arabia and perhaps the United States on more or less limiting the fall in oil prices. But it's not clear where this will lead to. But if you want, that's probably the single biggest story happening around Russia, its economy, its power capacity, uh, its ability to relaunch the Russian economy after immediate coronavirus crisis kind of subsides that's happening now and we already see the trend. Can I give a two-finger on the military situation? I've been asked by a lot of friends and colleagues and could Russia use the lockdown in Europe to do something? And because the military has or is a kind of reserve operation that is activated in all emergency contingencies, we have right now the highest grade of readiness of the military apparatuses because they are assisting in basically all NATO states and even in the small neutral states, the local healthcare systems. So reservists are called in, people are on standby. And actually now, ironically, would be the worst time to do anything because now soldiers just would drop their masks and pick up guns and they would all be ready to fight. So from this point of view, there is uh, quite the contrary. We are now stronger than in the time of total peace and calmness. What else should people be thinking about at the moment then? Well, the economic issue is something that we really need to watch. Or As Nico said, there are, there are a lot of things that still need to be decided. How well the United States will come out of this crisis? What will be the impact of the healthcare crisis on the election campaign? Um, there are now, of course, hopes that Democrats would score better uh, than, than they would before because health has been their issue. Also, Russia and basically the eastern neighborhood states in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Moldova, they're all bracing now for the tides because their curve is rising as well. And the economic disruption it will cause is something that will test them. Interestingly, seeing most eastern European states going through that, the, the kind of response to the coronavirus crisis and how well the, the healthcare system functions pretty much implicates their ranking on governance efficiency. Those countries with the highest governance efficiency are basically able to cope so far best with, with this crisis. So if the European Union wants to draw a lesson for its neighborhood policy and for its engagement abroad, I think that uh, much of their state-building agenda has been uh, confirmed by this. Uh, the more able the state is to react uh, to any kind of contingencies, that might save life in a crisis, which we see now. I would also suggest that Russia is following European actions right now. And yet again... I think success of Europe in handling the crisis in cooperative manner will have implications on future Russia-EU relationship. Because yet again, our initial reaction to the corona crisis, and that was closing borders, each, con each country watching out for itself, having export bans in place and so forth, that was actually vindication of President Putin's long-standing worldview, that the world is organized around nation states and universal rules and any supranational projects are basically not viable. And I think as we go along, it will play a role how Europe 
comes out of that crisis. If we manage to strengthen cooperation, both in terms of handling the medical side of the pandemics, as well as economic fallout, I think that will strengthen our hand in our future talks uh, with Russia about world order, European order, rules, norms, whatnot. And if we handle it, this crisis on the sort of nation state basis, then I think that will set us back a lot. What were you going to say, Niku? Building up on what Kadri was saying, I'd like to kind of also maybe even radicalize a bit what Kadri was saying about what this crisis tells Russia about the way the world functions. And I think Russia feels very vindicated in its view of the world in very Hobbesian terms, in a very kind of homon hominem lupus est in terms of states being aggressive, egoistic, not willing to help each other unless they are forced to have an immediate interest in doing that. And also the way Russia has looked at the lack of EU solidarity, uh, intra-European solidarity in the first week of the crisis seems to kind of vindicate this Russian view. I think in the meantime, the EU got its act together, so there's much more solidarity inside the European Union. But nonetheless, the Russians are confirmed in their feeling that when a crisis hits you, your immediate instinct is to rely on yourself. And even if you need to, you know, be ready and gear up for a fight, try to fish in muddy waters and that everyone is doing that anyway. But if we look ahead, I think that in the immediate, if you, we talk about European and global attempts to help each other and show solidarity, I think, of course, Russia had something to contribute in the first week of the crisis when everyone was on the lookout for medical equipment, for masks, for ventilators. Russia didn't have much of that equipment, but it had some. Part of the reasons for that is that Russia has this very peculiar institution that very few states have called the Ministry of Emergency Situations. And that's a federal level ministry that is designed to help local authorities deal with emergencies. That's partly because local authorities in Russia are much less functional, poorer. So Russia kind of centralized this function of fighting fires and fighting the consequences of earthquakes. So Russia traditionally has some reserves like must to send to states or to neighbors or to its own regions. But once this immediate phase of the crisis is over, in the next two, three years, the world will be in a phase where everyone will be looking for money and means and funds to restart their economies. And of course, here, Russia's role and visibility will be much less. It's hard hit by the economic crisis of the coronavirus itself. But even before that, it didn't really have significant funds to distribute even to its allies and neighbors like Armenia or Belarus, let alone other countries. So I think as the world will start recovering from the immediate shock and the urgency of needing immediate medical equipment, Actors like the European Union, with the funds to help other countries recover, will be increasingly more visible and relevant, and Russia will actually be forced to play a much smaller role in the global efforts to overcome the economic consequences of the coronavirus. So the last time we had big discussions about Russia, it was in the context of, of Macron's help, hopes of resetting the relationship. What happens to all of that, given corona crisis and everything else that we've been talking about? Well, I would think that it might be on some time out now, but it doesn't necessarily disappear. There is no evidence that President Macron has changed his thinking about Russia. Diplomacy has slowed down for obvious reasons. No one is flying anywhere anymore. But I think we will return to that topic inevitably. 
Do you think that uh, things will be easier given the the kind of bad economic and other pressures that you were talking about, Nikki, or do you think it's going to make it more difficult? Oh, I'm pretty sure all the big actions and foreign policy dossiers that are temporarily frozen now will come back, not least the attempts, the French attempts to reset relations with Russia. Possibly even the need to cooperate more after this crisis will also be invoked as a reason for resetting relations with Russia. That's very likely, but the exact parameters of how should peace in Ukraine look like, how do you actually demilitarize Donbass, etc., etc., could change as a result of the shifting balance of power, if you want, as a result of that crisis. So how the EU will score in the next weeks and even years in terms of the economic recovery, but also how the Russian economy will fare, will play a role in this continuation of foreign policy interactions between Europe and Russia. Well, we'll definitely come back and talk about all of these things, I'm sure, many times during the crisis, after the crisis, in the world after corona, if such a thing ever exists. Thanks a lot for a really interesting discussion now. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Kadri, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I want to advertise two things, but myself, I am reading Dostoevsky. I do it always when there is early spring, when the snow has melted but leaves are not yet big. Somehow, I don't know why, but I, I find that a really good time to read Dostoevsky and its idiot uh, Russia on my reading table. But I will refrain from drawing any banal parallels between Dostoevsky and what we have today. Instead, to advertise, I would want to point out a new project we have at with ECFR Wider Europe program, and that is a lecture series titled Deep Dive into Russia. And you will find much background to what we talked today in the two first lectures. One was by Andrei Kortunov, focusing on corona crisis and implications on international order from Russian perspective. And the second one with Sergei Kuryev on the economic outlook for Russia. So I recommend it. You will find it on ECFR website, both video recordings as well as soon, hopefully, transcripts. Great. What about you, Gustav? A few seconds time left for reading. I read Robert Dalsjö, who is the current research director of the FOA, the Swedish Military Research Institute, or Lifeline Lost, the Rise and Fall of Neutral Sweden's Secret Reserve Option of Wartime Help from the West. Um, it's, as the title says, about Sweden's clandestine liaison with US and UK and its Scandinavian neighbors. In the occasion, the Cold War would turn hot. And I have to say, it's his PhD thesis, but for PhD thesis, it's definitely on the entertaining edge and it's quite enjoyable to read. Great. What about you, Niku? I haven't finished the two books I was reading at the previous po podcast I participated two weeks ago, so I'm still uh, halfway through them. But I'd like to draw your attention to another aspect of foreign policy matters. I usually try to keep an eye on what happens in pop culture and how foreign policy and international events and wars affect pop culture. So after the war in Ukraine, you had you know, dozens and dozens of very interesting songs. 
So partly through that prism, I'd like to draw people's attention to a rap song that appeared in Russia called Why Russians Don't Get Coronavirus. And it is in English. And it was written a few weeks ago when Russia was a bit more optimistic about the impact of coronavirus on Russia. And the second thing I'm going through now, it's a book. It's a selection of songs and poems written about the Russian participation in the war in Syria. It's 228 pages of poems about the Russian army in Syria. It's called Chujaya Yunasha Vaina, which would translate as a war that is foreign and ours at the same time. And I'm looking for some crazy or interesting details or elements of the way this war affects popular culture. Two wonderful recommendations. I am not going to recommend a book because I'm also, uh, I'm reading a novel at the moment, which I could mention. It's uh, by J.M. Coetzee. It's called Summertime. But an essay for our times, which I read the other day, was about Judith Sklar's work. It's called Discovering Judith Sklar's Skeptical Liberalism of Fear by two British academics, Samantha Ashenden and Andreas Hess. They lay out some of the the sort of core aspects of of Judith Sklar's thinking, uh, which is essentially about building kind of theory of liberalism, not around people's hopes of a better future, but trying to understand the essence of political thinking as avoiding uh, cruelty. Anyway, hope that you enjoy some of these recommendations. I think Niku's are definitely the most fun. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Kadri Leek, Gustav Gresser, Niku Popescu and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Valeria Balakonikova, and our editor this week is Marlena Riedel. Thank you very much, everyone. Mm-hmm.